Hello, I'm Andrew Dodd, the editor of The Junction. I'm just dropping in to let you know about a new series we're running over the next couple of months here on Making a Difference. While our student reporters and their hard-working lecturers and tutors are having a well-earned break over summer, we've still got some great stories to share with you on the podcast. Over the next five episodes, we'll feature one in-depth story at a time. We're calling it the Long Read Series. And the reason we're bringing you these stories is because they showcase another dimension of student journalism. They're stories where the reporters have seen an issue in the world around them and explored in some detail why that issue is worthy for us all to consider. You'll hear about the people making a living from recycling cans, the fight to preserve a sacred Indigenous site, yet more victims in Australia's expensive rental market, and the legacy of a name that's everywhere around the country. We hope you enjoy the stories, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast and get the new episodes as they appear. And as always, thanks for listening and supporting our journalism. Have you ever seen a person rummaging through a street bin looking for cans and bottles? Perhaps you've cast a harsh judgment on them, felt sympathetic, or wondered what circumstances led them to where they are. And then there's the hygiene issue that makes you, and probably them, a bit queasy. But I want to tell you a story that will make you rethink those judgments. After we toss a can or plastic bottle into a bin, a whole ecosystem swings into action to turn our disposal into money. And it's not governments or big business always profiting. For some people, retrieving bottles and cans and cashing them in for 10 cents a piece is what they survive on, provide for their families, or just to keep busy. Academics know them as professional recyclers, and for those who do it, it's part of their livelihood. I'm Aston Brown from the University of Technology, Sydney, and now a rural and regional reporter at The Guardian Australia, based on the land of the Gitabal people in southeast Queensland. This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism podcast. It's getting late on a bitter winter night in Sydney. The temperature is in the single figures as a biting wind whips between office buildings that loom above Winged Station, one of the busiest underground train stations in the city. Sitting on a milk crate at one of the station's street exits is Tepiani. She's a 71-year-old woman wearing a plastic poncho on top of a cardigan and a beanie to stay warm. She's waiting, but if she has to wait much longer, she'll miss the last train home. That's what happened last week. She was stranded on the platform overnight until the first train appeared at dawn. Finally, after two hours of waiting, and just as things are looking dire, a station guard pushes the first of a dozen garbage bins onto the curbside at nine o'clock. Tepiani jumps to her feet and swings into action. She tears open a thick plastic bag that's full of food scraps and a few stray cans. She spends the next two and a half hours foraging through the bins, looking for cans and plastic bottles. Each can or bottle she collects will earn her 10 cents through the return and earn scheme. It's a way to supplement her pension, help her son pay his mortgage and keep busy. I didn't really like it, very dirty and yucky. (laughs) I don't want to do it, but if I don't do it, I didn't get nothing. 
since the introduction of container deposit schemes in every state and territory in Australia, people like Tepiani have become more common. Conservative estimates show Australians have received more than $2 billion in 10 cent refunds. Although it's unclear how much of this has gone into the pockets of dedicated can collectors like Tepiani. People aren't always pocketing the returns either. Tens of millions of dollars from drink container refunds have been donated to charity. Back in Sydney's central business district, outside Winged Station, it's turning out to be a typical night for Tepiani. The Thai expat has been collecting bottles and cans from the station every night for more than two years after she lost her job at a restaurant during COVID lockdowns. For some time, a station guard she befriended would wheel out the bins at five o'clock so she could clear them out and get home at a reasonable hour. But Tepiani says he now works at the next stop on the train line, Town Hall where competition among can collectors can be fierce. So she sticks to Winged, where no one else bothers her. It's her territory. I say no one bothers her, but that's not exactly true. Occasionally, drunk men stumble past and hurl abuse at her. Then there's the odd snide remark about what she's doing. But others can be generous. One man, on his way home from work, drops a steaming serve of pad thai and a can of soft drink by her feet. Another stranger does the same with a small bag of fruit. Every time someone drops by a gift, Tepiani stops work, nods her head, and smiles. She tells me it all goes with the territory. Some people are negative, but others are kind. Each night, Tepiani collects around 400 cans and bottles, or $40 once refunded. If you add together the time spent waiting, foraging, and the round trip home to Western Sydney. She's earning roughly $8 an hour. I was part of a study in the US that interviewed professional recyclers. That's Dr. Rebecca Taylor, an environmental economist at the University of Sydney. One of the traits that we see for those who do this professionally is that they tend to be from lower income, uh, low SES groups. And so for them, you know, this is a substantial income transfer that they're receiving by collecting these beverage containers and returning them for, for a refund. She describes the low-income earners, pensioners and people looking for extra income that frequently use container deposit refund schemes as an informal workforce. This is an unintended consequence of the policy. If you were to design a program where you're trying to, to help those who need income support, you wouldn't do it through a bottle deposit refund program. You would design a, a program that was directed towards income support. A few suburbs west of Sydney's central business district, and James, a father of one who works in emergency services, has a different approach to collecting bottles and cans. Yellow bin night, when households put their recycling bins out on the curb for collection, is when he goes to work. James would only speak on the condition that we concealed his identity, so we've changed his name and used the voice actor. Yeah, it's like an addiction. I just can't stop because it's free money. People see rubbish in cans and bottles, but when I look at it, I guess I just see money. James first got into collecting and recycling cans five years ago as something to do with his 10-year-old son. But now he goes out alone. It was something we could do together. You know, father and son go out, collect and make a bit of money. But passage of time, he's a teenager now and uh, he wants nothing to do with it. 
He says people like him have become such a fixture in the area that many households put their bottles and cans in a milk crate beside their yellow bin, so the collectors don't have to rummage through their rubbish. Once I finish work, I'll go from four in the afternoon until oh, about nine, ten at night, just non-stop, um, going from street to street, bin to bin, right around the neighbourhood. But the practice of going through other people's bins can be contentious. Some people call these foragers bin chickens. Councils, which are trying to recoup the cost of recycling collection, say that once the drink containers are in the bin, the material is their property. But that hasn't deterred James. He says households don't seem to mind. Once he's collected enough cans to fill his station wagon, he goes to what's known as a reverse vending machine in nearby Marrickville. It's one of over 620 return points in New South Wales where people can deposit bottles and cans and get a tax-free 10 cents for every single one of them. Normally I do about uh, 1500 bucks a month, but then last month I collected two grand, which you know, turned out a real bonus. In the past five years, James reckons he's collected more than 360,000 drink containers. That's about $36,000 into his bank account on top of his steady wage. And that son of his, who wants nothing to do with foraging for bottles and cans? James says he'll give him all the money when he turns 18. Every state and territory now has its own cash for container scheme, with Victoria and Tasmania recently coming on board. The schemes have been praised for increasing recycling rates and diverting recyclable waste from landfill. And the numbers from those that have been operating for some time are staggering. In New South Wales, more than 10 billion containers have been deposited since 2017. Not all states and territories report this statistic, but for New South Wales, $47 million has been donated to charity. In Western Australia, that figure is $10 million. From an environmental perspective, the scheme is encouraging more recycling and less waste. The recovery rate, the percentage of containers that enter circulation and is then recycled, is greater than 65% in every state and territory. In South Australia, where the first deposit refund scheme began in 1977, the return rate of containers is 77%. And the proportion of bottles and cans in the state's litter stream is also the lowest in the country. Of course, all this sounds great, and the program is at least ensuring plastics, glass and aluminium cans and bottles are being recycled and turned into new products. But there's always a cost. Container deposit schemes are funded by the beverage industry, and they pass that cost onto consumers when setting drink prices. And then there's the underlying issue. While these schemes are increasing recycling rates and keeping streets clean, they do nothing to reduce the prolific use of single-use plastics. To be perfectly honest, like why do we even have plastic bottles? Like there seems to be so much evidence that plastic is creating all kinds of damages that we can't quantify right now. Um, and yet they're still using it. <laughs> That's environmental economist Bevan Ashenmiller. The issue really has to do with regulations and rules that change how the manufacturers are treating their, their resources, right? The reality is that there shouldn't be so much waste, and it's never going to be fixed by people picking up bottles and cans, right? It's going to be fixed by recycled content standards, other kinds of taxes. She says, broadly speaking, the increase in recycling rates and uptake of return and earn schemes can tell us a few things about society. When the economy is going well, right, and you can get other jobs, those other jobs are better. 
and and you don't really do it. But then that means that people who are doing it are actually doing a little bit better because there's not as much competition for the bottles and cans. And also there's probably more bottles and cans because um, people are able to consume that. And then when the economy's bad, there's fewer bottles and cans out there and there are more people looking for them. Asher Miller studied a similar scheme in California in the United States, which started up in the 80s. From a survey of almost 700 people in 2009, she found about a third of material collected in the California scheme came from professional recyclers. She says many of those, like Tepiani, were from low-income migrant households. But there were other findings that suggested broader impacts about what was happening in communities that hosted these schemes. For example, crime rates, on average, were 11% lower in US cities that had a deposit refund scheme compared to the cities that didn't. Here in Australia, a national survey of container deposit schemes found 60% of adults are consistent users and another 21% are irregular users. In Tepiani's area in Western Sydney, the return rate of drink containers per capita is more than double that of Sydney's wealthier suburbs. It's half an hour to midnight. Tepiani fastens the last bag of cans to her dolly trolley, preparing for the long journey home. Tonight was a good night, she says. 450 cans collected. That's $45 once redeemed. And she'll make the last train home. Doesn't matter. I have to do it. No, I have to come every day to do it. Tepiani's happy by the extra income that collecting cans brings. She tells me that she might go back to working in a restaurant to earn a bit more money. In any case, she says, she doesn't like staying at home and doing nothing. She tells me over and over again, if you do nothing, you get nothing. One thing seems certain, she'll be back tomorrow night. This story was written and produced by me, Aston Brown. You can find a link to my original text story with video and photos on the Guardian Australia website in the show notes. Making a Difference is a production by Junction Journalism. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And for more stories from the best student journalism in Australia, go to the website junctionjournalism.com. Thanks for listening. next time on Making a Difference. It's one of the only places on Earth where people and their land have been recorded in art for more than 50,000 years. So it was like going into the Louvre or uh, uh, to the British Museum. It was just amazing. But it's also a place of contradictions, a site of cultural and historical significance created over millennia, sitting alongside a large-scale industrial development. It's outrageous that that is still continuing, that rock art sites continue to be moved, which will have a damaging effect on the rock art. I will bite tooth and nail till they cremate me or whatever they're going to do with me, I don't know. Because it has to be fought.